Thank you, Isaac. We appreciate that. And we appreciate your soft heart toward our students and toward the Lord as well. He uh, loves students and he loves parents and he loves the Lord. He loves the Word of God and he loves the church. And we're very, very blessed to uh, have him. So thank you and Jenny for everything that you do. Can we uh, stop and have a word of prayer? Lord, as we, uh, those of us who are older, think about graduating from high school, it was the end of high school, and yet they called it commencement. Because at the time, we didn't really understand it, but life really was just beginning. Seniors in high school, and then the next four or five years of their life, are going to be making tremendous and life-changing decisions. They'll be thinking about jobs. They'll be thinking about uh, establishing their life and how they want to live. And they'll be uh, choosing a mate. All of those kind of things that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. And so our prayer for them is that you would guide them. Our prayer for them is that you would protect them. There are a lot of things out there that are designed by the enemy to trip up people, to mess up people, to derail people. And we're praying that that would not happen for any of us. And we're asking, Lord, that by your grace, <clears throat> you would remind them of that song we sang. Never once did we ever walk alone. And we want to pray that they would feel your presence, know your presence, and live in your presence. And we pray that you would guard them, protect them, guide them, encourage them, discipline them, push them, whatever it is that they're going to need. We pray you would do that. And I think of the hymn, Savior, like a shepherd lead us. And all the things the shepherd shepherd does to get the sheep to green pastures we want to pray lord you would do that for them and so we love them and we thank you for them and we thank you for what they've been taught and we thank you for what they're going to learn we thank you for how they're going to be guided by you and one of these days when they've been graduated 10 20 30 40 years May they have a testimony that glorifies Jesus Christ. Thank you for their parents, and we pray your blessings on them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Exodus 24. We're ready to get into a brand new chapter. And uh, we're going to read some things that... Uh, I loved studying this and uh, getting ready for this message because where we talked about last week, the Bible in the New Testament tells us these things were written for our admonition. This one is not so much about a warning as it is a picture. How many of you are old enough to remember typewriters? Yeah, yeah. You probably remember TV before remotes and uh, cassettes. 
You probably remember all of those uh, phonographs, all of those kind of things too. Um, a typewriter, for those of you who are not real sure about it, basically what it did is it had a collection of metal with letters on it. And there was a ribbon that had ink. And when you pushed the A key, then uh, the A would come up and it would strike the ribbon and leave the imprint of the A on the paper. Now, the A didn't come off on the paper. It's still on the typewriter. The original A, it stays there. It's not a one-use thing, but it was a type writer. A type of the A was left on the paper. Now, why do I say something like that? Because what we're going to read about today has some types in it. Uh, theologians and old books and old people will talk about this as a type of Christ. This is a type of the Holy Spirit. This is a type of salvation. And what that means is it's a glimpse. It's a picture. It's not the real actual thing, but it kind of gives us like the letter striking the ribbon and leaving the imprint on the paper. It gives us that kind of a picture. I also thought about this. Maybe this explains it. Uh, I was watching a show that had cops on it, detectives, and uh, the bad guy had written something on a pad of paper, and then they tore it off. But you know what was amazing? The detectives were able to pick up that pad, look at the clean sheet underneath, and see the imprint of the writing. Now, they didn't see the writing, and they couldn't make out all of it, but they could take a pencil and kind of color over it, and they could see what had been written on the original. And that is kind of like a type, a shadow, some people say, a prefigurement of this stuff. And when we read this, we're going to see something that is Old Testament, thousands of years old. But it's very New Testament in the things that it brings about. And it gives us a picture. It gives us a shadow of the plan of God and what he is doing. So let's start reading in Exodus 24, verse 1. So Moses came. Let me see. I need to go back. Excuse me. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, there's some good names for you uh, expectant parents, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with them. This is kind of an exclusive thing. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. We probably ought to stop and snicker right there because those of you who have read about them in the wilderness, uh, well, they didn't quite live up to that. But then again, neither do you. Verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord 
And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent the young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in a basin, put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. They must have meant it. They said it twice. Verse 8. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant. Does that sound familiar? The blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. The Lord made the covenant with you, and it is symbolized, ratified, and based on a blood sacrifice. Starting to kind of get a little glimpse here of what is being said. Verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Might want to underscore that. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. It was like the heavens. Think of the blue of the sky. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. So what are we supposed to gain out of this as modern people? This experience, of course, like all the other things we've read, very different from our experiences, very different from anything that we've been through, and yet much the same. And so as we think about these things, I want you to consider with me about four things that bring them to that last point. That last point, they saw God and they ate and they drank. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. And here's what I saw. Number one, if you want to have peace with God, Old Testament or New Testament, you've got to have an invitation. You don't just come before God just because you want to. You don't come before God just because you feel like it or other people say that you should. Those who have a right relationship and peace with God, they were invited, just like Moses, just like Aaron, just like his sons, and just like the elders. The other people were not allowed to come, and they were not welcome to come, not in, not in this particular way. <clears throat> and when we think about the call that goes out, there's a general call that says, whosoever will may come. But there's also an effectual call that comes out. It's the particular call 
of God upon particular people so that they can come and know the Lord. It's not your decision that saves you. It's not your responding to the Lord that saves you. And it's certainly not any works or any ritual that you go through or anything like that. It is, of course, the work of the Lord. And when you think about this, think of John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, you got to let that sink in, and you got to deal with that because that's not my words. It's the words of Christ written in the eternal word of God. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, I had someone say to me, well, I believe he draws everybody. Well, let's finish the verse and give you indigestion. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is very clearly saying only the ones that he draws can come and only the ones who come will be raised up on the last day. So it's not universal. It's not for everyone. Not everyone is going to be saved on the last day and that's what he is thinking of. John also wrote in another place those who are born again not by the will of man not by the will of flesh but by the will of God. You and I never would have conceived of salvation the way it's revealed in the Bible. You and I would conceive of something that would be blasphemous, idolatrous, and totally inadequate to save us. It would be something that would make us feel good, something that would pump us up, something that would make us look better than other people. It would make us into Pharisees, in other words. But it wouldn't save. Inadequate to save. So the first thing that I see that is a type or a picture of salvation is it's by invitation only and not the invitation of an altar call, not the invitation of a friend or a neighbor or a relative or somebody that's concerned about you. Thank God for people like that. But it's by the invitation of God. If you are born again today, it's because at a certain time and place, the Holy Spirit said to you, come. And then he enabled you to come and enabled you to believe and brought you to the place of knowing Christ and worshiping him. And so that's the first thing that happened. Secondly, notice this. If you want to have peace with God, you need a mediator. Who's going to go to God on your behalf? And who's going to bring what God says to you? His good news, his grace, his mercy, his gospel, we call it, the good news. Who's going to bring that to you? Well, for you and for me, that's easy. It was Jesus Christ. Jesus came from the Father and he revealed God to us. And he revealed the plan of God and he himself of course, became the sacrifice of God. Now, in these verses, we see that Moses is a prefigurement of Christ. He's a type of Christ. He's a picture of Christ. Now, he's not the real thing. And as an imperfect human being, he can't function as the real Jesus. 
But God gives us through Moses a picture of what he is going to do. You see, folks, people who think that, well, the Jews are saved one way and Gentiles are saved another way, you're dead wrong. There's only one way to heaven and there's only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that is through Jesus. Some people think that in the church we're saved by the grace of God, not of works lest any man should boast, but in Israel... Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Isaiah and all those people, they were saved by keeping the law. No, they weren't. They were saved by the grace of God and their evidence of salvation was the keeping of the law. Just like for us, when we get saved, the evidence of our salvation is a changed life, changed direction, and changed morals and all of that. That doesn't save us. It's the evidence that comes out of salvation. When you think about the Bible talking about bearing fruit, let me give you a definition of fruit. Fruit is the outward expression of the inward nature. An apple tree doesn't become an apple tree because it bears apples. But the apple does give evidence that it indeed is an apple tree. It's the outward expression of the inward nature. And so when you and I are saved, our nature is changed. The Holy Spirit comes within us. We're made spiritually alive. And the truth of the Word and the work of Christ through sanctification does something in our life. Our life begins to display what is our inner nature. That's why Jesus said, by their fruits you shall, anybody know? You shall know. You shall know him. And so our lives display that. Now, where did we get all of this? How do we know all of this? Well, there's a mediator. And just as Moses was the one that was called out of the group to come before God and approach God, did you know that no one was able to approach God face to face and as an equal except Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, I wonder who he's talking about. Then you go down a few verses, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Well, okay, now I know. Who is the only begotten of the Father? What? Jesus. Yeah. So it's talking about Him. And when it says that the Word was God and the Word was with God, in the Greek it's proston theon, and it means face to face with God. Face to face with God. Who could do that? Well, you try it and you die. Anyone else tries it and uh, they're obliterated. But this is the one who had the right to be with God. And Philippians 2 tells us that at the time chosen by the Father, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, he emptied himself of everything that it means to be God. 
He didn't quit being God. He just took off the rights and the privileges that he would have as God. I am always, those of you who know my background, so thankful for people who give up their rights and privileges as Americans under the Constitution to join the military. You know that people in the military do not have exactly the same. They do have constitutional rights, but they're not quite the same. They can't live anywhere they want. They can't do anything they want. They can't wear anything that they want. I mean, as soon as they get off of the bus, they've got a drill sergeant, a drill instructor that is taking over their life. And folks, any of you who've been in it, you could say amen to this. It's not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. Isn't that right? Here's when you get up. Here's when you go to bed. Here's when you take a shower. Here's how long you have to take a shower. Right? Here's what we're doing today. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's the correction. Here's the discipline for doing it wrong. I mean, those people literally give up rights and freedoms in order to fight battles and to be preserving liberty for us. Thank God for those who serve. Thank God for our veterans who have served. And thank God for those that have given their lives for us and our freedoms. Can I get an amen on that? You're very, very blessed to live in a country where people want to do that. And consider this. Some of you who served during the Vietnam era, you were drafted. The people that are serving now in these long, long wars that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places, they volunteered. They did it because they felt like it was the right thing to do. My dad always said that the volunteer military system, it'll never work. He was kind of upset when they did away with the draft in the 70s. You know what? He had to admit before he died, it's worked pretty well. And I said, Dad, here's the thing you have to think about. A lot of people went to Vietnam who didn't want to go and wouldn't have gone if they, were, if they had a choice. Is that going to affect the way that you train? Is that going to affect your attitude? No wonder so many of them felt free to be high on drugs and those kind of things. People deserted and all of that. My dad worked in a chapel uh, and his assignment of that chapel was with deserters that had been captured. And he led a lot of them to the Lord. When you think about all of that, it kind of makes sense. But why is the military so effective now? Because the people who are in it want to be there. They have chosen to be there. They have joined up because they wanted to. It's a volunteer force. But they don't just join up and then just do whatever they want. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it was like before there were uniforms and people just wore what they wanted to wear, especially generals. They would wear all kinds of crazy stuff. 
And the troops may or may not have proper and adequate clothing. Think of Valley Forge and think of rags wrapped around their feet and think about how threadbare they were and how they would take clothing from dead soldiers, even enemy soldiers, and how they would get clothing from maybe the local village or something like that. How do you know who are the good guys and the bad guys and that kind of stuff? And we almost lost the Revolutionary War until a Prussian soldier, a General von Steuben, came and imposed discipline and order upon the American troops there at Valley Forge. And some of those things are still in place today. He's called the father of the American army. Now, if all they did was just willy-nilly, whatever they wanted to do, train if you want to, sleep if you want to, march if you want to, carry a weapon if you want to, shoot at whomever, and all of that kind of stuff, we would never win a war. But there are people who come and they say, this is the mission, this is the objective, this is when we're going to do it, this is how we're going to do it, and yes, you are going to do it. And they come down, and it's not the president, the commander-in-chief who does it. He has mediators that come and tell the military, this is what the commander-in-chief wants. Or you go back further, this is what the king has said that we're going to do. This is the idea that someone is a go-between between the higher-ups that you could never approach and between you. And that's what Jesus did. He's the one that came to us and he revealed to us the Father. He revealed to us what is really important. You see, the Pharisees, on their own, they just came up with the idea that good works, that's all that matters. How do I know whether my works are good enough? I look around at other people. And as long as I'm better than you, it's like that old story of the two men that were uh, out hunting and then a bear came after them. And one of the men said, run. And the other one said, you think you can outrun a bear? He goes, no. All I have to do is outrun you. Right? And when you think about that, that's the Pharisees' approach to things. All I've got to do is just be better than you, better than a publican, better than a prostitute, better than uh, some of these other people that were out there. And Jesus came to show, no, that's not enough. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, who can meet that standard? And Jesus would say to us, I do, and I have. And that's why he is the mediator. He could go before God to represent us, and he can come before us to represent God. And we see in these particular scriptures and verses that Moses was the picture of that Mediator, He came near the Lord, and then he went back, and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all of the judgments of the Lord, and the people answered. All that the Lord says, that's what we'll do. I think they meant it at that particular time. They didn't always live up to it, but I think they did mean it. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, it says, For there is one God, we know that, and this is where we get a little confused. And there is one, <clears throat> one mediator, excuse me, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we don't pray to our ancestors. We don't pray to dead saints. 
We don't pray to idols. We don't pray to anything that helps me worship. It's an idol. It's an idol. There's one mediator. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, and our prayers go before God because he is our mediator. So Moses is a picture of the mediator. You needed someone to come and to tell you what God is like and what God demands, and you needed someone to go before God and to plead your case. To go before the Father and to defend you. And Jesus does that, of course, with his own blood. Thirdly, if you want to have peace with God, you need a blood sacrifice. And so Moses tells the young men, offer these oxen as a burnt offering, but save the blood. Save the blood. So they put it in basins. And you remember here that Moses took half of the blood and put it on the uh, altar and uh, sprinkled it there. And then he uh, gave them the word of God, the book of the covenant, which is contained in Exodus, by the way. And he read that in the hearing of the people. And they made a confession of their faith in the Lord. All that the Lord has said we will do and we will be obedient And then what did Moses do? He took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you uh, according to all these words. And so even the covenant initiated by the Lord, ratified by the Lord on behalf of the people, but it was done through blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, we've been reading out of the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And listen to this. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so that's what our good news is. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the picture here that uh, we find in this story where the blood was collected, poured out not only on the altar, and thank God, The blood of Jesus is poured out on the altar and on the mercy seat in heaven on your behalf and on my behalf. But Moses also sprinkled the blood on the people. I don't know if you would like that or not. I don't know if they expected it. I don't know if someone looked at that and said, I just washed that robe. I mean, it's kind of a gross thing until you think of it through the eyes and the lenses of a typology. What was God showing them? The blood of the sacrifice has to be acceptable to God and poured on the altar. And the blood of the sacrifice has to be applied personally to you as the people of God. Has the blood of Christ been applied to your life? I witnessed to someone one time and they said, Oh, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never trusted in the blood of Christ to save me. That's a very unfortunate thing, isn't it? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And fourthly, there's a picture here. You not only need the other things, but you need to see him and submit to him as Lord. 
the sovereign one. Did you notice the people said, all that the Lord says we will do and we'll be obedient? What were they doing? They were saying, Lord, we submit to you and to your kingship, to your sovereignty. I want you to think about when you were saved. When the apostle Paul got saved, first thing he said was, what would you have me do? That submission and that obedience to the Lord. Well, Moses went up, also Aaron and Nahab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. This is sort of like an Old Testament mount of transfiguration, isn't it? They saw the Lord. Well, they didn't see all of him. What's the description that's given? They just got a glimpse. Just a glimpse. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire. The Lord said, you can't see all of me. Remember later, Moses has a time where he hides in the cleft of the rock and the Lord passes by and Moses got a little glimpse, just a glimpse of his glory. Well, God is giving them a glimpse of himself. You know what he does? He shows them his feet. In fact, he shows them the bottom of his feet because they're really looking at the pavement on which he stands. What does this mean? Well, it means that regardless of what may change and shift in your life or in the world around you or in the universe, our Lord always stands firm on the pavement that doesn't move. It was the color of a sapphire. There was another stone that it probably was. It was in that area that I've forgotten. But notice it says it was like the heavens. You look up at the sky. You go, oh, that's a beautiful blue sky. That's the color. And the Lord is telling us here, I'm not a part of earth. And I'm not a part of heaven. I stand above those things because God created heaven. And he created the earth. He's not moved by the things that happen on the earth. His foundation is not uh, Joe Biden. His foundation is not Donald Trump. His foundation is not you or me or anything else. He stands on his own foundation above the heavens. He rules the heavens and he rules on earth. And the Lord Jesus is waiting in heaven today until his enemies become his footstool. There you see it. And so the Lord is saying that until you recognize who he is, and his sovereignty and his lordship, you can't have peace with God, and you can't be saved. You don't get saved one day and then make him lord ten years from now or anything. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, Scripture tells us in Revelation, we're near the beginning of the Bible now, let's go to the end, 1714, they will make war on the Lamb, that's Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them, For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Isn't that interesting? We're going to be with the Lord when he conquers. But what are we? The called, the chosen, and the faithful. To what? His lordship. He is the master of the universe. He is the king above all kings. And the Lord 
that is over all lords. That's saying whenever you look at royalty, Jesus is the ultimate. No one above him. No one commands him. No one changes his mind. No one throws him off course. And when it all is said and done, he conquers them. And we, the called, the chosen, and the faithful are with him. And so look what happens as a result. Verse 11. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. There was still some separation at this point. But look what they did. So they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. You ever been out on a date? I went out one time with a, with a girl, and uh, I was always taught when you get to the restaurant... You order first so she knows what your budget is and what you can do. And I, so I ordered an appetizer and I ordered something else and all of that. And uh, this girl ordered a glass of water and a grilled cheese sandwich. Well, needless to say, it didn't work out too well because that wasn't Sammy. And uh, <laughs> it was weird. It was just weird. And you know what it was? I found out through other dating relationships and all of that, and also having daughters, girls don't like to eat in front of guys until they get really comfortable with them. Well, I can kind of relate to that because if I'm sitting out here on the street on a park bench and people are walking by, I might eat a bologna sandwich or something like that, which sounds good about now, doesn't it? And, uh, but if I'm sitting talking with somebody, especially somebody important, if I went in to see a senator, if I went in to see a congressperson or the governor, I probably wouldn't take a snack. I wouldn't be sitting there in the Oval Office and say, excuse me just a second, and pull out a bologna sandwich. Did your mom wrap those in wax paper ever? And you open it up and, you know, you eat a little bit of it. I wouldn't do that. And yet these people now, when they're brought before the Lord on the basis of the invitation of God on the basis of a mediator, on the basis of a sufficient sacrifice, on the basis of the lordship of Jesus Christ and his superiority. What happens to them? You notice in verse 11, they calm down. They have peace with God, so much so that what do they do? They break out the bologna. Well, they're Jews. They probably didn't eat bologna. Maybe all beef. Maybe all beef. But... Um, or isn't there that Hebrew national? You know, maybe something like that. But that's what they do. Why? Because of what God has done, they now have peace and a right relationship with Him, and they can relax. They can eat. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that shows us that we too, we had a place where we heard the call of God. We came to a place where we recognize there's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice that pays for our sins in full. And without him, there is no payment. And we don't even add to the payment. He said, it is finished. And what did we do when we were saved? We confessed Jesus as Lord. If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And what happens when we do that? You and I live in the presence of God. 
He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's not more present here in the church than he is anywhere we go because God goes with you everywhere you go. Good, bad, right or wrong, up or down, whatever it may be, he never leaves you because he loves you. And you live in the presence of God. You have freedom in the presence of God. You have peace in the presence of God. You are loved in the presence of God. You have the mercy that comes with being in the presence of God. You're already experiencing something on earth that lost people will never experience. All they'll hear the Lord say is, Depart from me, worker of iniquity. Jesus says to you, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36 As for the word of the Lord that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. Now keep in mind, these people were not perfect people. These are not the best people out of the Bible for the most part. These are the first generation that come out of Egypt, yeah. But none of them that are mentioned in here are ever going to see the promised land Because of their sin. These are not perfect people. When you think about Aaron. He's the one that made the golden calf for crying out loud. And yet here he is. When you think about Aaron's sons. They're the ones later that are killed. Struck by God. Because they offered strange fire. Unauthorized fire. On the holy of holies. They decided if dad can do it we can do it. And God said not on your life. And that's what it cost them. <clears throat> be always a, beware of crossing the lines of authority. You never know what it might cost you. Well, you say, well, Moses was right. Not even Moses got to go into the promised land. His sin kept him out. He got a glimpse, but he didn't get to go in. What's your point? That imperfect people like us can have peace And fellowship with God. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Are there any sinners in the room? Yeah. Jesus came to die and to pay the price for the sins of sinners. Imperfect like us. The people of God, all that he says we'll do. You know, we kind of say that a lot, don't we? And we mean it. And we mean it. Until temptation comes. Until a difficulty comes. And God is always so good to seek us out. To discipline us. To bring us back. And to teach us to walk in his ways. Why? Because through the invitation of God. Through the mediator. Through the sacrifice. And through the lordship of Christ. We have peace with God that lasts for eternity. The war is over. Hostility has ceased. You're now royalty and a part of the family of God. And you're going to live with him forever. Somebody say, praise the Lord. That's the heritage of the people of God. Heavenly Father, as we think about this, We want to ask you to forgive us for taking our salvation for granted.
We're taking the fact that we're not going to go to hell for granted. Now replace that with a love for you, with an appreciation of our salvation, and with compassion toward people who don't know you, so that we share the gospel of grace with them, so that we love them, and so that we're kind to them, and we do the right thing, and we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that we think, and in our very motives. Transform us, renew our minds, and do it that you might be pleased in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.